corner on the left is right in front of Solomon Prison, about a minute or two walking out the gate. Some of my family members, some of them I didn't see the whole time I was incarcerated. Uh, that's my nephew, my brother, my daughter on my left, and my mother. On the right, my grandmother, she's 80 years old. She said, my grandson's coming home, I'm going up there to pick him up. After 21 years, I didn't see her. Some of you guys that are here know my history with being raised, helping her make tamales for Christmas and stuff. She made those for me the day before and brought them up so I could eat them. That's her feeding me. Just to experience freedom, like a physical freedom, there's a lot of people write about it, and I've read poems about how freedom is inside. And yeah, you can say you're free in the mind. And I get it. Freedom does start in the mind. Am I free to think? Am I free to make decisions? I wanted to tell myself. I wanted to believe. But that still wasn't 100% free, even in my mind. Because even the choices to think what I want to think or feel what I want to feel, even those are limited. When I was in there, it was, I'm like, man, how can you say you're free and be in here? Maybe it's more an existential thing where other people, they do feel free. But to be out here and see this freedom, the physical freedom, to not have to go back in the cell or be told what I can have and not have, all of those different things that revolve around freedom. Gilbert Bale has experienced this feeling of freedom for only 16 days. He was released from prison on Thanksgiving after spending 21 years in California prisons. He had a life sentence with a slim possibility of parole. I'm Julie Reynolds Martinez. This is Gray Area, and this is season two, After Life. For the entire season, we're following Gilbert as he experiences life after a life sentence. As Gilbert prepared to come home after two decades in prison, some important news got lost in the excitement. Deputy Bradley Dietz, the officer who killed Gilbert's brother Manny, was arrested by LA police. He was charged with obstructing justice in that fake cannabis raid that we talked about in episode six, Under Color of Law. It was October 2019, a full year after the heist. The news media was all over the arrest, but offered few details but we're going to follow up in our next episode. While Gilbert's had moments of joy reuniting with his family, breathing the ocean air, or just walking down a quiet street, freedom has also brought unexpected challenges. He's worked hard to plan for his transition, but the world out here has changed in ways he never imagined. I know what to do. I train what to do. I teach this what to do. But now I'm in the situation, and it's different. The rules are different out here. It's late 2019, and his family all went home days ago. He's living in transitional housing and trying to navigate life in Santa Cruz, a town he'd never been to before paroling here. A lot of things we take for granted seem like towering mountains to Gilbert. Just a week after his release, he needed to get a driver's license so he'd have an ID. Some men from the halfway house took him to the DMV in their van. I've only left the house twice, 
after we got about three blocks away, I said, man, if they opened the van and told me to go back to the house, I, I'd be lost without this phone. At least I could call Rebecca on the phone and say, hey, I'm right here. Get me back. <laughs> Gilbert prepared to get his license long before he left prison. He requested a copy of the driver's handbook by mail months in advance. I made 75 flashcards. Dang. I wrote test questions and I was carrying them around in my pocket. So every time I was waiting to come out of the cell, I'd flip through them. When he got there, the rude DMV clerk was bad enough, but even worse, he had to take the written test at a computer station. He had a serious panic attack. My anxiety jumped to the roof because I don't know how to use computers. I'm computer illiterate. I didn't know if I had to log in, and I don't know, like, is it online? I don't know internet. I don't know none of that. I've only been out one week. I've only used a phone for one week. Have still have not been on a computer. I started getting anxiety, and my old brain, that old side, told me, just leave, just leave. Just leave. Don't even go to the computer. Just throw the paper away and walk out. But the new brain said, this is part of the process. You're going to feel uncomfortable. Just try the computer. You never know. During his last few years in prison, Gilbert was allowed to own a small touchscreen tablet that had no connection to the Internet. He could play games, listen to music, or read books on it, but that was it. The huge monitors he saw at the DMV seemed utterly foreign. And basically it looked like a touch screen, but with a mouse. So instead of me touching the screen with my finger, the mouse was my finger and I just answered questions and it was very easy. I left, got back in line. I said, I'm calling Julie right now because I gotta <laughs> tell her what's going on. I need to face these challenges because this is not even really a problem. If I can't deal with this, how am I going to deal when somebody has a problem with me? Or I have a problem with them. And if my anxiety freezes me or puts me in that space where I'm incapable of meeting the challenge as a healthy person that's not institutionalized, then do I really believe what I've been teaching? Do I really believe the changes I made? Is it just theory or does it really work when you're in the problem? You know, I'm being triggered. Again, fortunate. I'm fortunate I have Rebecca. All these different people that are supportive for me making this transition, I've had that support. I can imagine how many people have left prison in my situation that didn't have that support. How many guys just give up and don't even go get their driver's license, then get a ticket, have police contact, and give up. And I felt good. I was like, here's my paper. I said, oh, you passed the test. I said, how many did I get wrong? He goes, doesn't matter. You passed the test. <laughs> but I'm a college student. You want to know what I got wrong. You want to know your score. <laughs> but they wouldn't tell me. We walked out of DMV, and I was so happy, man. I just wanted to jump in the air. And the rest of the night, I was getting phone calls and texts about me passing the test. Yeah. But I was fortunate, again, my mom, when I came to prison, 
she kept my birth certificate, my social security card. So again, what about the guy that doesn't have mom that saved that stuff for him? I think that's the importance of doing this podcast is telling the story. How can we help transition people back or acclimate back into society? And what if they don't have those people? Gilbert has been carrying a little voice recorder with him. The ocean is just a few blocks from his halfway house, and he likes to go there and talk into the recorder about all the changes he's going through. To him, everything feels like a test, a test of the work he's been doing on himself for so many years. Today I got called in the office at the program. Stop did an assessment on you yesterday. STOP stands for Specialized Treatment for Optimized Programming. It provides all kinds of services to people just out of prison in California. It was STOP that arranged for Gilbert to stay in his halfway house. Monday, they're going to come and pick you up and take you to a sober living environment, an SLE. My anxiety went from a 1 all the way to a 10. I'm like, what do you mean I'm leaving? I can't leave. They feel that because you haven't used drugs in so many years. You've been going to school, you've been going to college, you got your certification, you've been working in the program for 11 years, that they don't feel that this is best suited for you. They don't want you in a program with people that are barely starting to get clean, like in barely in early stages in recovery. I was like, no man, but I'm in the right place. I know I am. I have all these supportive people around me right here, and here we go now, you're gonna move me. She goes, no, you're, you're staying in Santa Cruz, and my anxiety is going from a 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, it's going down. Do you know what? I, maybe they're right. Maybe somebody has my better interests at heart. I'm like, you know what? Man, just, just relax, man. Calm down. Monday, I'm going to have my stuff packed up in the bag. And when a stop agent comes and pick me up, I'm going to just follow instructions. That's... That's my responsibility. That's what I signed up for. I told the parole hearing, yeah, I will do everything you tell me. Whatever it takes to get my freedom back and, and to start living my life, my new life, I will do it. So this is part of it, and I'm going to do it. That first year where he had to live in Santa Cruz, I, I feared a little bit that he was going to be, if you want to call it homesick, even though he hadn't been in L.A. for such a long time, but he wanted to be there so bad. That's Coach Leo Jimenez, Gilbert's friend and fellow counselor from Soledad Prison. So I feared that he was going to just pick up and go and say, okay, I'll be back. And he had so many chances to do it. There was times where he was like, I got a free weekend. I can go to L.A. And I was like, well, why don't you go? And he's like, I can't. Parole said I can't leave, so I got to sit tight and I got to do my time. And he would just stay. And I'd be like, are you, are you sure? He's like, yeah, coach, I took a bike ride and I enjoyed my day. He goes, but man, I wish I could have gone to, to LA. It was a dopeless doping. <laughs> you know, it was that dopeless doping that he wanted his dope to go to LA so bad, but yet he knew that he was breaking a rule. And we go back to integrity. And he was just like, I'm gonna serve my time, do what I have to do. And then once again, we fast forward the movie and we see where that led him to. 
The stop people ended up moving Gilbert into a sober living house that was right next door to the transitional housing program he hadn't wanted to leave. STOP is one of many programs California is counting on to try to lower its recidivism rate, the percentage of people who go back to prison within three years of serving their sentence. Many of the state's programs like STOP mainly try to help people adjust after they leave prison. But Gilbert is starting to see that the kind of groups he and his fellow prisoners created inside the walls can do a lot more to help people with challenges like dealing with anger or reversing criminal thinking long before they come home. It's sad, the recidivism rate for prisons, especially in California, I mean, it fluctuates between 68 and 73% of people come back to prison. We say, we're really trying to lower the recidivism rate. And then somebody sitting behind a desk decides what we need for that transition. And whoever's sitting behind that desk, if you're listening, come and ask. Ask people that are in there, ask people like me that got out all the challenges that were there. It's ridiculous the amount of money that goes into these programs that are supposedly designed to help us transition. Somebody's making a decision that doesn't understand. Even though only 4% of the state's $16 billion corrections budget goes to rehabilitative programs, there's fierce competition for those $600 million. In fiscal year 2021, the total spent on rehabilitation came out to roughly $3,650 per prisoner per year. That's out of the $105,000 per year it takes to incarcerate one person in California. This is according to the state's legislative analyst's office. Back when the U.S. Supreme Court ordered California to reduce its prison population in 2011, the state also began phasing out its privately run prisons. Big private prison contractors like Geo Group and Core Civic suddenly scrambled for the surge in rehab program dollars. These same companies got big contracts to run day reporting centers, halfway houses, and counseling centers. In fact, Geo Group runs the STOP program that's helping Gilbert transition. The Capital Weekly has reported that Geo Group lost at least $223 million when California ended its private prison contracts. But then, its Geo Reentry Services division took in almost that much in new contracts with the state. Reentry is such a thriving business that it's even attracted the get rich types, like this guy who calls himself the halfway house guru. You're charging $500 minimum. Eight beds at $500, that's $4,000 a month. $2,000 expenses. You walking away with $2,000. I don't just show people how to open up a halfway house. I teach you wealth building strategies. I show you how to actually access millions of dollars how to set up shell corporations. And then I show you five ways of cash flowing. Five ways. And my secret sauce, I want to give that to you. But there are also respected nonprofit community groups angling for a cut of the same action. It all adds up to a whole lot of hustling for what's a relatively small percentage of the corrections pie. General claims that certain policies or reforms led to declining crime rates in a particular state likely confuses correlation with causation. Crime rates may have changed or continue to decline 
even without the reforms, or the reforms may have slowed the declining crime trend. We simply do not know the impact of reforms. This is from a 2019 panel on what works in reentry, convened by the National Institute of Justice. We have competing interests and we have competing funding. We put them in drug treatment programs. We try to deal with trauma if we are evolved in our thinking about detention services. And then they return to the community and somebody asks us to measure, measure recidivism. Yet John could not tell you whether or not the inmates leaving his charge really are getting the kind of mental health services they need, the kind of drug treatment services they need, the kind of gainful employment that they need. So to me, if we're going to move forward as a society and as a nation to improve reentry outcomes, it shouldn't just be the corrections people sitting on this panel. It's true that many of these programs do help a lot of people. But there's an awful lot about California's rehabilitation system that doesn't work. For example, Gilbert tried to get computer training while he was still locked up. He was trained in prison as a drug and alcohol abuse counselor, but he was also going to need computer skills to handle case files and client records in his future career. He asked a staff person at the prison if he could get into the only computer class they had. I taught her, look, I'm computer illiterate. I'm not asking for no favors. I'm asking, can you please put me on that waiting list? so that I can at least get some formal education on the computer. And also, society changed. I've never been on a computer. This would very much help me. Can you please give me the information I need, or can you help me do that? And her exact response, quoter, says, I don't do favors for inmates. As his parole hearing date loomed, his need for technology skills grew more urgent. And I went to my annual review two years before I came home, and I said, can you please place me on the waiting list to go into the computer literacy class? And she said, "Ah, I'll put you on the list, but good luck. It's a long waiting list. So here I am, back in society, over two years, never took the class. I need to send resumes through a PDF file. I gotta do job search. I typed up one before I left prison on a typewriter. And yesterday, Rebecca typed it for me on her laptop and then sent it through email to my phone where now I can just forward it out of my phone. Again, another supportive person coming in and helping me with that transition. What about the guy that doesn't have that support? We're in a Santa Cruz coffee shop, surrounded by Christmas decorations and the smell of peppermint lattes. Gilbert's telling me how he's adjusting in his first couple of weeks. Mom, what you doing? I'm sitting right here with Julie. She's interviewing me. We're recording it. And it's okay though. We're almost done. We did the whole DMV experience and I was telling her about all the support. Yeah, the rude lady. Yeah. No, no, yeah, I know. I'll call you after. Okay. I love you. I love you too. I'll call you later. Bye bye. 
All right. That was mom. She's checking up on me all the time, Good. every day, a couple times a day. And I love it. Like, in prison, you can't just call when you want. I want to talk to my daughter more than 15 minutes. You can't get to the depth of a conversation in 15 minutes. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. So and also, now they have, can't call you. Yeah, they can and now they could call me. I could text them. I wake up in the morning and say, good morning, beautiful daughter. You're the best in the world. I take little pictures with the Santa hat. I sent her a picture and told her I'm happy today and you have nothing to worry about. I could wake up my mom in the morning and tell her I love you, mom, and thank you for being there and never leaving me alone. And, you know, Rebecca, I have access to them whenever I want, and I wanted that more than anything in the world when I was in there. Yeah. So, I love it, you know. Will that stay with me the whole time? <laughs> I hope so. That's one thing I notice about out here. The things that people take for granted, if they were to take those things from you, what would you do? Go lock yourself in the restroom. We're going to take your cell phone. And we'll leave you there for 21 years. And once in a while, we'll let you come outside and go get on the phone for 15 minutes, and then you're going to go back in there. You're going to take bird baths when there's no showers you're gonna fill up the sink and get a cup and pour water on yourself you're gonna sleep there with somebody else that's probably snores <laughs> that likes to sell cold or another guy that likes to sell hot <laughs> or be standing in the cell all day because there's not enough room for two people to be standing up so he just hogs up the floor all day now I, I probably get a similar sense of what Buzz Armstrong felt like <laughs> he took that. One small step for a man. <laughs> <laughs> I remember watching the documentary and he says that, you know, he was preparing for this profound thing he was going to say when he stepped out. Here I am, sitting in Santa Cruz, California. <laughs> Might as well be on the moon. Wow. Yeah, because it's... It's a new planet. It's a new world. Gilbert has been leaning heavily on Rebecca to help him with all the new technology. Like if he gets lost on a walk, he calls her. She can pull up a map on her phone and tell him where to go. Rebecca's the person that Polly got the worst end of it. Oftentimes when I couldn't do something, I would get so frustrated, I was like, why do I still feel powerless? Those emotions are for when I was doing bad, you know? I'm doing good and I'm still feeling powerless. This ain't supposed to be going on. So I have to be careful with that. I don't want to lose my relationship over my behavior when I'm frustrated. There's going to be things that I'm not going to be able to do and I'm not going to be able to get help. And I have no control over that. Some things, I'm just not there yet. And that's a hard pill to swallow because I'm a problem solver and I don't like being in that emotional state because I know that that's not healthy because that's not me. It is me, but it's not who I want. Now if I'm at a 10 and then I'm calling Julie I'm calling Rebecca, I'm using self-talk, and I'm not going down to a nine, an eight, a seven. And as I'm completing those challenges, those are 
validating that I'm on the right path. This stuff does work. So you're actually testing what you've been teaching now. You're field testing it. You're out in the world. Battle tested. Yeah. Battle, <laughs> Battle tested. Yeah. Yeah. Battle tested. I try to clean up even after other people. Some guys are like, hey man, you don't have to do that. And I'm like, no, it's okay, man. This is my little way of transitioning. Just trying to feel normal. I feel normal if I'm doing that, you know? My brain is readjusting, taking in these things that were in my memory from before I went to prison, but it almost got severed. It was like a long distant memory of going to the beach, being in a house, being in a car. There's so much distance. The longer you're in there, there's more and more distance in between those memories and what you're actually experiencing every day. It's gonna take a while before my, hopefully before my mind doesn't, you know, where, where it's not new no more, where it's, where it's just, is it just another day at the beach? Is it just another day sitting in the house or getting on a bus or walking in the store? When is it gonna be just another day and will it ever be just another day? I don't know, but I, I just love coming out here. This is like so far been my favorite place of all the places I've been, well, just a few places I've been since I've been out. It's just coming out here and, and being, being in the moment. Gilbert is still discovering the battles of everyday life out here, relying on the work he did in prison, as well as support from his family and loved ones. That support makes all the difference. His family even spent years saving up money so that he could buy his first new car. Today I went out shopping for a car, not knowing what exactly to look for or even where to go. One of my friends at the house here offered to give me a ride. We ended up going over to the auto mall. One of the sales representatives comes up to me and he's all, you like this car? I said, yeah, it looks nice. And he said, here's the keys, man. Let's go for a ride. You got a driver's license? I said, yeah, I got a driver's license. Remember, the last time Gilbert drove a car was right before his arrest, 21 years ago. I started the car, put the seatbelt on and checked the mirrors and... Man, put it in drive and <laughs> gave it some gas and man, just the joke, the power of the car and the little the tight steering wheel, the control of the car was just totally different than what I remembered from driving. As I drove down the street, man, I felt another sense of freedom. I got a different level, another notch on my belt, basically. Just three weeks ago, I was sitting in a cell. Here I am driving down the street with a car dealer representative in the back seat. I felt good, like I accomplished something. Then I went into the uh, office and that's a whole other monster right there. The self-disclosure about prison. It's almost everywhere I go, there just seems to be this missing piece or this question I'm asked that I basically, to me, is lying. I was taught for the last 12 years, you know, working on myself, there's two different types of lies, omission and commission. One is withholding information and one is just outright lying, denial. As I go to these different places, like to the bank, 
when I go to the car dealership, when I go to these job interviews, and I'm asked, okay, what was your last address of residence? How long have you been living there? I mean, what address do I give? So i pretty much been giving the prison address to the last residence I've lived in for the last 10 years. Then they ask me, what was your last job? Here we go again. I mean, did I have a job? Yes, I worked in the prison. I started from eight cents an hour and worked my way all the way up in different jobs and different prisons all the way to 85 cents. I had to go to school to get that. I, I went and got my drug and alcohol certification. If not, my max was 65 cents. So here I am giving this as my last job. I'm thinking they must think I'm a drug dealer or they must think that I'm hiding something. Even I would think that. He went home to his halfway house to think about this major purchase. A couple weeks later, Gilbert tells me what happened when he went back to the dealer to buy his very first new car. Rebecca's on her way here from Texas for their first visit outside of prison. Her plane has landed, but she still has to get a ride share from the airport that's an hour away. Day after Christmas, I'm at the Toyota dealership in Santa Cruz. I'm sitting at the table with the salesperson, and I got my back to the back door, and then all of a sudden, we're texting, I'm getting calls in between. She's like, I'm on my way, I landed, I'm in the Uber. I'm like, hey, I need your help. Like, get here as quick as you can. My nerves are going crazy. I'm, I'm about to buy a car. I'm willing and dealing. You know, I need a better deal. I've barely been out of mine. Not even a full 30 days. And she's like, hey. I turn around, and I can see the salesperson looking over my shoulder. I turn around, and I see her. But I'm negotiating. I'm, like, in the middle of a car deal. This isn't exactly the romantic moment they've both anticipated for years. But I got up and hugged her, kissed her really quick, a little pet kiss, and basically handed her my phone and said, here, you take care of the insurance agent and help me. I am nerves are wrecked right now. So she grabbed my phone and just started helping me. Hey, you sign here. This is what this is. And... That was our first time together. Me out of prison was at a dealership. That's not how you pictured it, was it? No. (laughs) So if I didn't get this car and this deal... (laughs) If I didn't get this car, me and her with her luggage, she got luggage from the airplane in her hand. We're going to take an Uber to the program that I'm in. So I'm like... Dude, we have to get this car. <laughs> so we get in my car and we drive away. And I'm like, this is barely the second time I drove a car. Last time I drove a car, I was in a high-speed chase for a few miles with a helicopter and two police departments behind <laughs> me. Gilbert is still on parole and under very close supervision at the halfway house. But he does get permission to go out on his first date with Rebecca. The evening starts with dinner. Okay, so when we had our first date at the steakhouse, what was it what you were expecting? Did it meet or exceed, really, your expectations? So, thinking about our first date, before I got out, you know, 
was many years in the making. I wanted to be a gentleman and I thought about the small things or what would seem small probably to you or any of anybody else listening would be like picking you up in my own car, um, <laughs> opening the door for you. Like, do I ask my date where they would like to go? Or is this something that a woman expects from a man? And I don't mean that as like from a sexist point of view. I mean it more from a respect perspective like is that how a man shows his respect by asking or does he plan it and surprise her and that that surprise element is that what makes it romantic so I wasn't sure how I was gonna go about that it took almost a month for us to actually meet together since I've been out been home and many many days and nights where I thought about just driving down the street with you in the car and having a conversation like a normal person. I talk to you a lot about how much I want to feel normal. And what I mean by normal is not the standard that society places, but more like for me internally. But the food was excellent too. Um, nothing compared to the company that I had. You leaving the restaurant and getting in the car food and just kind of trying to decide what we're going to do next. I had a really good time. I had fun. I felt the romance. And all those things I, I dreamt of doing. What is the one thing that stood out to you that showed you how much I love you during this visit, during our visit? Oh, wow. I might get in trouble for this. It's a little rated R. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be, oh my god you better <laughs> no I'm uh, I'm <laughs> you know I'm a gentleman <laughs> we've known each other for four years but the relationship was you out here and me in prison you just never know how two people are gonna get along or is that is that going to be the same or different or good or bad or, you know, you just never know. I wanted to be realistic about it. I also wanted to be spontaneous. I don't want to control how me and you interact. How do we get along? So, of course, the experience is going to reveal that. And I think it did. I, I really enjoyed your, your company. I enjoy your conversation. You stimulate my mind. You stimulate my emotion, a lot of emotion. You were telling me that we don't have a correctional officer staring at us in the visiting room. So coming out here without that supervision, how is our energy going to come together, you know? And it, I think it came together well. Holding your hand, walking down the street, making sure I'm on the street side as we walked and looking out at the beach and being able to just hold you in my arms and hug you and kiss you and all the selfie pictures I took of us. You helped me a lot in that transition to start a new life. 
a new life in a new world. This is a, for me, this is a new world. It's a different culture. Time has changed the world drastically. And being around you in this new world, I feel safe. Now that I'm a changed person and I come out here and live in a different world, how's the world going to accept me? Like today I was in the market and it may be just in my head, but I see people stare at me. You know, I got a tattoo on my head, my neck, my arms. Even though tattoos are acceptable out here, I, I just feel like I look different. I walk different. It gets me to thinking that the prison system, what are they really teaching you? You have all these classes, but the, to me, it seems like they're not teaching you the required life skills, ordering at a restaurant, buying a car, signing up for college. Gilbert keeps telling Rebecca that he's so eager to become normal. But what is normal after two decades locked away from family, from friends, from nature, from the world? I want to adjust back into what I think is normal for me. Just what's normal for me was all the years was hearing the sirens going off and watching officers run to alarms and the cell doors closing and I'm just like, that's so deeply recorded in my head, in my brain, that I normalized it. It's even hard to talk about right now. I can feel the emotion come back, like there's a lot of pain there. I don't know when that'll go away. It doesn't go away. I don't know. I can't answer that. Has anybody answered that? Has anybody ever talked about it? I, I, I just don't want those memories in my mind. Maybe me even talking about it right now is just reinforcing it. I don't know, but I think it's important that I do talk about it. Maybe somebody else can benefit from hearing me talk about it, hearing me say what it, what these experiences are. But I'm happy to say that I got to walk down the street. I got to call my family while I was walking down the street. I got to send them pictures, use the phone, and record all of this these experiences. I think about all the guys that are still in there, whatever their normal is, I, I think about them guys. Most of the time I think about them making my bed and putting a nice warm blanket and sheets that are not that wool blanket they give you in there. I'm like, God, man, it, all these guys are still in there and doing the right thing, but because some law or some politics that are happening out there because the economy is going good or is going bad or all of those different things that hold us in there. I think about them all the time. I told them before I left, I'm going to do everything I can as far as advocating for them. And if this is my way of advocating for them, at least just talking about it right here, I guess at least I'm doing something. 2019 is coming to a close. Gilbert, our co-producer Mara, and I are just chatting on a bench outside his halfway house. It's the first time we're all physically in the same place together. And we're sure it's one of more such meetings to follow as we wrap up work on this podcast. Gilbert's telling us about a promise he made to his friend Chango, a guy in prison who has three life sentences. He goes, I want you to never come back and go find somewhere to do karaoke and do the whole song Take a picture and send it to me and I'll be a happy guy. All right. Oh, we have a mission. What song? <laughs> what song? He goes, I don't care what song. I told him, I'll do that for you. I made a little list. Like, I let 
few of the lifers that I work with. So I'm here to write down what you want me to do. It's a good okay. way to keep now yourself busy. I'm like, I'm going to this meeting, I'm going, and I'm like, and then I lay on the bed. I'm supposed to be asleep. <laughs> yeah, how is it without your fan? I can't sleep. I... Can I... we get you a fan, man? No. <laughs> I have to learn to adapt, yeah, or else I'll be always carrying around a bunch of baggage. What's that? My fan, my CDs. So I left the CDs, left the fan. We're all thinking we'll have this whole podcast wrapped up soon. It's going to be about what it's like to come home from a life sentence, and hopefully it'll help others learn how to adjust to the world after years in prison. Except Gilbert's story is about to turn into so much more. In our next episode, Gilbert settles into his new career as a counselor. We'll find out what happens when the law finally catches up to the law enforcement officer who killed Gilbert's brother Manny. And then the new world Gilbert is just starting to understand grinds to a halt. This time, everyone's on lockdown. The breaking news, stay at home. That is the order tonight from four state governors as the coronavirus pandemic spreads. New York, California, Illinois, and Connecticut all ordering non-essential employees to stay home. Those orders cover 75 million people across the United States. But soon, people are ending their quarantine to take to the streets. And conversations about the roles of police and prisons will change dramatically. This episode was co-produced by Mara J. Reynolds and Gilbert Bayo. You can check out all our episodes and show notes at grayareapodcast.com, and that's gray with an A. And don't forget to try out Season 1, where you can usher in old traditions made new in a gray winter's tale. In that episode, Gilbert makes his first gray area appearance, explaining how he tried to recreate his grandmother's tamales in prison. And if you like gray area, Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really helps us reach more people. The music for this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions, Ketza, Lovo Loco, Sarah Afonso, Martin Schellekens, and Nuisance. Thanks again to the amazing artists at the Free Music Archive. Details are on our website. This project was made possible with support from California Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities visit www.calhume.org. For Gray Area, this is Julie Reynolds-Martinez, and this is Season 2, Afterlife. Life.